Hey guys, well, Merry Christmas. If we haven't met yet, my name's Hans. I'm one of the pastors here, uh, but it's great to see you all here. Um, I want to kick off by telling you about a TV show I used to watch. Don't watch it anymore. Uh, I think that's because I've got kids now, but in uh, 2013, I used to watch a show on ABC called Q&A. And it was basically a bunch of public intellectuals who would get uh, interviewed. And I can remember a particular episode where it was uh, part of Sydney's Festival of Dangerous Ideas. And there was a number of panellists on, but I can remember three of them in particular. Uh, one of them was Germaine Greer, one of, the, uh, one of the icons of the feminist movement and a great author. Uh, the other one was Dan Savage, who was a, a very prolific author, especially around in the area of sexuality. And the third person that I remember was a guy named Peter Hitchens, who is uh, the brother of the great atheist, my favourite atheist, he's a great author, Christopher Hitchens. But Peter Hitchens is a Christian. And the last question was, what is the most dangerous idea? After thinking for a bit, Germain Greer said freedom is the most dangerous idea. Dan Savage, uh, he said... Mandatory abortion for anyone who has a child or gets pregnant before the age of 30. Peter Hitchens was asked, what do you think is the most dangerous idea? And he says this, the most dangerous idea in human history and philosophy remains the belief that Jesus Christ was the Son of God and rose from the dead and that is the most dangerous idea you will ever encounter. There was a kind of look of bewilderment on some of the faces on the panel. There was kind of some laughter from people in the audience. And the host actually turned to Peter and he said, why do you think that's the most dangerous idea? And he said, because it alters the whole of human behaviour and all our responsibilities. It turns the universe from a meaningless chaos into a design place in which there is justice and there is hope. And therefore, we all have a duty to discover the nature of that justice and work towards that hope. It alters us. If we reject it, it alters us all as well. It is incredibly dangerous. That is why so many people turn against it. Do you, do you hear what he's saying? that the resurrection of Jesus is such a dangerous idea, it changes not only lives, it changes history. And can I say, I totally agree with, with Peter Hitchens on that, but I would add something. I don't think it's just that Easter is a dangerous idea, a revolutionary idea, a radical idea. I actually think Easter is too. If you have a look around today, it seems like Easter is not, uh, uh, sorry, Christmas is too, wrong, wrong holiday. If you have a look around today, Christmas, it seems like it's not that radical. I was down at the Macquarie Centre yesterday and there's all these, um, there was all these, um, you know, shops with beautiful things in the window and everyone's smiling or stressed and it just didn't seem that radical. And yet, if we really grasp the true nature of Christmas and who it is about and what it is actually saying, we will grasp how radical it truly is. And here's the choice before us all. We can, we can really understand Christmas and find in Christmas not only what's at the heart of Christmas, but what's at the heart of the universe and what should be at the hearts of our lives too and therefore have a life of meaning 
Or we can ignore that and just think, well, Christmas is just about food and presents and fun and all those kind of things. Not that those things are bad. Those things are great and I'm going to enjoy them all. But if we just think Christmas is about those, we have lost the heart of Christmas. In today's passage, Luke 1, oh, sorry, Luke 2, 1 to 20, we are going to see what Christmas is all about. We're going to see the radical nature of Christmas. We're going to see three things as we look at this passage. We're going to see a radical king, a radical peace, and a radical invitation. Radical king, radical peace, radical invitation. Let's have a look at a radical king. Have a look at verse 1 of chapter 2. It talks about the king or the Caesar of the whole Roman Empire. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree. This is the most powerful man in the world at that time. What he said went. He issued a decree. It happened. He is Caesar Augustus. He is the king of the world, or so he thought. Because he was a very humble man, he called himself the son of God. I'm being sarcastic when I say that about his humility. But he was the most powerful man, and yet there's another king here. Have a look at verse 10. Here is the angels talking to the shepherds, and they said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause you great joy, that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This little baby that they're going to see, uh, still just freshly born, wrapped in cloths in a manger. This baby is not just a baby. He's two things. He's the Messiah and he's the Lord. The word Messiah is, is, is a word that gets used all the way through the Bible. It, it, it's, it's a word that says or means that God's appointed king. This baby is not just a baby, but this baby is God's appointed king. The word Lord all the way through the Bible, all the way through the uh, New Testament is, is almost uh, a lot of the time a word that is, is in place of God. Uh, and so I think what the angels is implying is he is the king of the universe right here. He's not just the king of Israel, but the king of the universe. The king of the universe born to a couple of confused teenagers in a stable. He is the king of the universe. But here's the thing. Here's why this king is so radical. If he is the king of, of the universe, you know what that means? He's meant to be the king of your life too. That is, you don't set the agenda for your life. He does. That is, he doesn't revolve around you. You revolve around him. When Copernicus saw that the whole solar system doesn't revolve around the earth, but the earth revolves around the sun. It was revolutionary. And this is the revolution that we're talking about here. Once again, if Jesus is the king of the universe, he's the king of your universe, and he doesn't revolve around you, you don't set the agenda for him, but he sets the agenda for you, every area of your life. And can you see, can you get a picture of how radical he truly is? Because if you get this, it will revolutionize your life because your life is not about you, it's about Jesus. 
because he is the God and the king of the universe. But some of us go, well, hands up, but, but I believe in God, I believe in Jesus. Can I ask you, what, what God and what Jesus do you believe in today? Because I think it's very easy to substitute a God or a Jesus that is far more palatable, that will not say to us, hey, my, your world revolves around me, who's maybe the king of his world, but he may not be the king of mine. I remember watching a TV show. Uh, it was a panel again. It's actually an interview show, a late-night interview show. And one of my other favourite uh, atheists was on there, a guy named Ricky Gervais. And he was debating with, with a talk show host about whether there is a God. And can I just say, the, 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 the talk show host was, is a Christian and he was losing and losing badly. Ricky Gervais was wiping the floor with him. And so the talk show host turned to the audience and said, who believes in God? And a bunch of people put up their hand. Most of the people put up their hand. And the talk show host was almost like, so, well, I guess that settles it, as if he won, which he didn't. He still lost, right? But I wonder how many people would put up their hands if you didn't just say, oh, well, do you believe in God? But if you said, do you believe in the God of the Bible? the God who is all-powerful, all-knowing, the God that revolutionises your life because he demands that he sets the agenda for your life. In every area of your life, he is king. Do, do you believe in the, in the God who you come to him and he says, this is how you're meant to live. This is who I am and this is who you are in response. I wonder how many hands would go up then. I dare say, not many. You see, one of the problems with us saying, oh, well, I believe in God or I believe in Jesus, the, the problem is we don't believe in the real God. We don't believe in the real Jesus. And that's why it's really important as we look at the Gospel of Mark over the next 16 weeks, starting next week. Maybe you're here and you're figuring out where you're at with Jesus and you're trying to go, well, who is this Jesus? I'm, I haven't really explored him as an adult. Well, come over these next 16 weeks because that's exactly what we're doing. We're exploring who Jesus is as we read through one of his biographies. And you're going to come face to face with the revolutionary Jesus, the radical Jesus, the real Jesus. And we're going to see that he is not, he is so far different from the Jesus many of us have on our heads. He is the radical king who demands that you live your life for him. But, but not only that, there's a radical piece here. Have a look at verse 14. As, as the great company of heavenly hosts, all the angels are singing, what are they singing? Verse 14, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. Excuse me. The word peace there, I don't know if you read it and you went, oh, that's really nice. That, that, that's like an inner peace that I get this, this inner equilibrium where it feels like everything's going well and everything's beautiful. I've heard many sermons that say, or, or many Christmas sermons that say, Jesus came to bring you inner peace. And can I just say that I think knowing Jesus will bring you inner peace. I just don't think that's the peace that is talked about here. So if you went to a shepherd and you said, peace on earth, and you said, oh, that's inner peace, he would look at you and go, what do you mean by inner peace? Because in the first century, they had no concept of this inner peace. It's a very Western uh, 20th century idea and 21st century idea, right? 
The peace they're talking about is defined by the person in the first verse, Caesar Augustus, the leader of the Roman world. The Romans would come in and they were big on peace. But how they would bring peace is they would crush their enemies. They would bring the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. And basically they they would come in maybe to uh, a, a town, they would destroy all their enemies and they would have peace. That's the peace they're talking about. This peace is actually the absence of war, not this inner peace. But you're probably asking, well, well, how does this relate to Jesus and us and Christmas, this kind of absence of war? Well, be honest with yourself for a second. When I was talking about Jesus setting the agenda for every area of your life, was there a little bit in you at least that just went, oh, man, I don't really like that? Because there's some parts of my life that I know that Jesus doesn't rule like he should. But guess what? I like to be the ruler of, those, of that area. See, we all, have, we all have this thing where we know that there is a God, but we don't want him ruling our lives. We all have this kind of conflict with authority. None of us like getting told what to do. None of us do. I mean, think about it. What was one of the first words out of your children's mouths? What was it? Was it no? It was no, right? Because your children, just like mine, and except we weren't like this when we were kids, right? But we hated our parents telling us what to do, so we would say no, no, no. We've all got a problem with authority, especially the authority of Jesus here. Here's what an atheist, Thomas Nagel, says. And this quote is on your outline if you've got one. I speak from experience, being strongly subject to this fear myself. I want atheism to be true and am made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God and I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. My guess is that this cosmic authority problem is not rare. I think that's an amazing insight, isn't it? We've all got a cosmic authority problem. And when we have a God who tells us how to live, we don't, it's not just that we don't like that. The Bible says we hate that. We are at war with God. We can't stand that. But some of us go, well, hands, actually, I think you need to calm, calm the rhetoric. Because I'm not at war with God. I don't hate God. In fact, I, I believe in God. I just don't believe in the God that you do. I don't believe in the Jesus that you do. I still believe in Jesus. But what you've got to realize is that when we're really frustrated with somebody or we want to hurt them, what we do a lot of the time is put a pathetic substitute in their place. I'm not sure if you guys are fans of The Simpsons. I used to watch The Simpsons all the time. And there was a particular episode where Homer and, and Bart, Homer was the dad, Bart was the son, they hated each other's guts for, for this episode. They were really angry with each other. So what did they do? Well... Bart went out and he got a bigger brother, basically a substitute dad. And he, and he would play with his bigger brother in front of Homer so that Homer would be hurt. 
And then Homer got a, a little brother, a, a substitute son called Pepe. And he would play with him in front of Homer, so, sorry, in front of Homer so that Homer would be hurt. See, the problem is when we say, I believe in a different God, not the God of the Bible, we're just substituting a God of our imagination because that just shows how much we are rebelling against the God of the universe. We don't want to believe in Him, so we'll put a pathetic substitute. And it just shows our immaturity and our rebellion. But here's where the peace comes in. There is war between us and God, and yet what does God do? God comes in the person of Jesus. This baby who is the king of the universe grows up and he dies for you. On the cross, he is taking God's anger against your and my sin. On the cross, he establishes peace between you and God. That's what he does. And so can you, can you see how important you are to God? Can you see why in verse 11, he's not just called Lord and Messiah, but he's called Saviour? Because in God's great love, he comes to save you. Because that's what you really need. We don't need a God who just gives us a little bit more. We need a saviour. You you see, if if our biggest need was the overcoming of poverty, God would have sent an economist. If our biggest need was we needed to know more, God would have sent a teacher. If if our problem was mental health matters, our, our chief problem, God would have sent a psychologist. If our problem was physical health, God would have sent a fitness instructor or a dietitian. If our problem was the overcoming of boredom, God would have sent an entertainer. But our biggest problem is our own sin and God sends a saviour, the Lord Jesus himself. And he sends a saviour to people who can't save themselves. Did you see in the passage, who, who, who does he come to? Who does Jesus come to? He, he, he comes to a couple of teenagers, Mary, Mary and Joseph, Mary and Joe, average people. He comes to shepherds who, even in our day, shepherds are kind of on the lowest of the low. In this day, they're even lower, and that, who, that, who, that is who Jesus comes to. People without power, people without authority. See, every religion says to be right with God, you have to clean yourself up. You have to be moral. You have to get your life together. Therefore, every religion is for the powerful, those with a moral compass, those with moral power. And Jesus says, I have come for those who don't have moral strength or power. I have come for those who don't have status in this world. I have come for those who are forgotten who are unloved. I have come to give you love and to save you because you can't save yourself. That's the peace that is on offer. Which when you think about it is far better than just an internal peace because that internal peace can be taken away. I was feeling really good the other day and then someone cut me off in traffic and that internal peace went very quickly. 
Have you got the peace that is truly on offer at Christmas? And lastly, let's have a look at this radical invitation. Have a look at how the shepherds respond. Have a look at verse 15 with me. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, sorry, gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and let's see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. Verse 16, so they hurried off. You, you can see how excited they are. They, they hurry off. They run. It's, let's go. The, in verse 18, that they see Jesus, the baby, in a manger, just as they thought, and they were amazed at, at, at all this. You, you have a look in verse 20, what happens. The shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. What the writer of this biography of Jesus, Luke, I think he's trying to show us is this is the real response to Christmas. To, to know that you have encountered the king of the universe, to know that you have got that peace, that peace that you really need and you really want. And therefore what happens? Your whole life is changed. It becomes one full of joy. It becomes one full of, of wonder. Because now you know not only what Christmas is all about, not only what's at the heart of the universe, but what your life is all on about. The shepherds go away praising God because they have encountered the king of the universe. And they go away with great joy. Have you encountered the king of the universe? Have you got great joy? I don't know if you have been opening presents over the last, uh, you know, this morning or, or yesterday. Um, we're, we're like... I was going to say we're a Danish family. No, we're an Aussie family, but my dad was from Denmark. So we opened presents the night before, or some of the presents. And, you know, our kids got a bunch of different presents. You know, one of my sons got a speed cube. One of my daughters got a, uh, a microphone because, um, you know, my kids are not loud enough already. And, uh, you know, all, all, all that kind of thing, right? And, uh, but, but you know what's going to happen with, with those toys? In three or six months, guess what? There's going to be a new thing. Maybe Ninja Turtles will come back or something like that. It doesn't really matter, right? And those toys will seem passe and the happiness will wear off. But, but that's the same thing with Christmas. Christmas is great because, you know, you get some days off, you get to eat this great food, you get to hang out with family, all this kind of stuff. But then, you know what? Wednesday happens and you've just had a few days off and you're back at work or you're back at work in the new year, all that kind of stuff, and you're back to the grind and the happiness of Christmas just is left. But if you get the real meaning of Christmas, that you have got a king who loved you so much that he died for you so you could have this radical peace and you live for him, you will find the reason for your existence and you will have not only just happiness that goes and comes, you will have joy for eternity. This is the joy that is for all people that the angels talked about. So there's a radical invitation to kneel at the throne of this baby king, to kneel at the throne of the one who bought you this peace, to kneel and to find who you truly are as you find out who he truly is and to have the joy that lasts every day and into eternity. Let's pray. Great joy. 
I thank you that at Christmas, if we grasp the radical nature of Christmas, we can not only bow our knee to the king of the universe, but we can also have this silly war that we're waging with God to be dealt with, to end. At Christmas, we can stare into the face of the one who is the king of the universe. And what we find is not only who he is, but who we are. And we can live with eternal joy in response. Give us this joy, we pray, not only today, but for the rest of our lives. Amen. We're going to sing, stand and sing our last two songs.